Welcome to this week's Rashi Shir, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And this week we resume with Perak Tet Pasuk Kaf Vav. So the story is that Noah got drunk and fell asleep and Cham abused him and Noah woke up and the Pasuk Kaf Dalad said, He knew what his young son, Rashi says it doesn't mean young, it means despised son had done. And Kafhei Vayoma Arur Kanan Eved Avadimi Hiela Echav. So Noah curses Kanan, the son of Noah of Ham. And Rashi explained in Kafhei that Ham didn't want Noah to have a fourth son. So in response, Noah cursed Kanan, who was Ham's fourth son. And instead of Kanan being able to look after Ham, Canaan had to share the burden of looking after Noah with Shem and Yafet. And then we go on to Kaf Vav. So in a sense, Kaf He is all that Noah had to say to Ham. Now he's got something to say to Shem and Yafet. And he says in Kaf Vav, Vayomer, Noah said, Baruch Hashem, Elokei Shem. Blessed is God, the God of Shem. Vayhi Canaan Evet Lamo. And Canaan will be a servant, a slave to them. Now, what is, Rush, what is Noah saying? Why is he saying it? Whom is he talking to? Whom is he blessing? If you look carefully, he's actually just blessing Hashem. But Rashi says the following. Baruch Hashem Elokeishem, she'atid lishmor haftachto lezaro. Referring to Hashem. Uh, it's a bit confusing here because it's Hashem, i.e. God, and there's Shem, son of um, Noah. But... God, in the future, will keep his promise to his descendants, i.e. to Shem's descendants, to give them the land of Canaan. So, the problem Rashi's facing is there's no specific bracha to Shem. That's actually the first. There's at least another problem as well. There's no specific bracha to Shem. The simple shah of the words is he's just blessing God. But he blesses God as Elokei Shem, the God of Shem. So why does he bless God as the God of Shem? And why doesn't Shem get a bracha? So Rashi says he does get a bracha. He's praising Hashem as the one who will, in the future, because he hasn't done it yet, keep his promise to his descendants, keep God's promise to Shem's descendants, to give them the land of Canaan. So there's a, uh, Rashi points out there's a sort of theme going through here, which is, again, a curse or a negative thing towards Canaan who was cursed already in Kaf and is cursed again in Kaf Vav, in the last words, which we haven't discussed yet, by he, Canaan, Eved, Lamo. Um, so there's something which is sort of negative to Canaan, but there's also something which is good to shame, namely that Hashem, okay, shame, God, the God of shame, why is he the God of shame? Because, why do we refer to him as the God of shame? Because God will keep his promise to the descendants of shame, to give them the land of Canaan. So it's sort of a, um, uh, come back to the theme of Canaan getting despised, and Shem getting a benefit. It's also interesting, um, Rashi has no problem with saying these things relate to something that's going to happen many, many, many generations later, and the focus is going to be on the Jews. It's interesting, and Noah doesn't talk about the Jews here. 
There's nothing explicit, there's nothing in the Pshat about the Jewish people. But as far as Rashi's concerned, it's all focused on the Jewish people. Because uh, as uh, the Torah was written for the sake of Bnei Israel, uh, uh, throughout Rashi, it's quite interesting how in Bereshit and Noach, where there's no Jews, Jewish history hasn't begun. According to Rashi, it has. Everything is, uh, so many things in Bereshit and Noach are revolving around the future of the Jewish people. Now, there's another problem which Rashi is answering, and uh, it refers to the last word, Vayhikanan Eved Lamo. Lamo is a rare word, as far as I know. But what does it mean? It means to them. Canaan will be a servant to them. And when you read that, you see the problem. Noach says, blessed is Hashem, God of Shem, and Canaan will be a servant to them. What's the problem? There's only one person. Well, it's actually only God. Remember? Okay, so Elokeshem. So Rashi has answered that by saying there's a bracha to the descendants of Shem, who are plural. Without Rashi, you might have read it as a servant to Shem and Yaphet, but that won't work because Yaphet hasn't been mentioned yet. So Rashi has to find a plural people who will be the recipients of the bracha, and Canaan will be a servant to them. But as actually Rashi hasn't finished because on the words, Vayhi Canaan Eved Lamo, Lamas Oved, as a servant-bearing tribute. Now, to be honest, I, I have to confess, I'm not 100% sure because I've seen different explanations. Whether this means a servant who has to pay money, which is what Lamas normally means. Um, in the ancient world, if people were captured, sometimes they had to be slaves, and sometimes they just had to pay a tribute, like an annual tax. Sometimes it was both. And um, an alternative understanding, so either you say it's, it's uh, Canaan is somebody who has to pay tribute, or Canaan is someone whose tribute is that he is serving, which is probably the better translation. Lamas Oved, his tribute is servitude. Now, whatever it means, why does Rashi have to explain it? And the answer suggested is Canaan's already been cursed, and he's already been told in Kafhe, what's he going to be? Eved Avadim, not just an Eved, but Eved Avadim. To whom? Le'echav. So why are we saying again that he's going to be an Eved? So Rashi says he's going to be even more of an Eved. Not only is he an Eved in Kaf Hay, he's now a Mas Oved. He's uh, in, in some sort of more perpetual and, and, and more difficult servitude. So that's what Noach says to Elokei Shem. Literally, I'm being particular because of what's coming next. Now, in Kaf Zion, the Pasuk says, Yaft, hard word to pronounce, Yaft Elokim Le Yafet. Uh, we'll leave that untranslated for a moment. V'yishkan ba'ahalei Shem. And he will dwell in the tents of Shem. V'yihi Canaan Eved Lamo. And Canaan will be a slave to them. Again, the same words we had at the end of Kaf Vav. I just must say, by way of sort of comparison, Rav Hirsch has got a beautiful explanation of these two pesukim, and he says that Noach, in these words, is giving the whole subsequent history of the world. And in particular, the interrelationship between Shem and Yafet, which is the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people, as exemplified, I mentioned this last week, by Yavon, by Greece, who is a descendant of Yafet, as we will see pretty soon. So he sees, V'yishkon ba'oholei Shem, Yafet will dwell in the tents of Shem about the interaction between Greek culture and Jewish culture. But Rashi doesn't say any of that, so we're not going to dwell on that. Rashi has a very different approach. 
So, Yaft Elohim Liyafet, Yishkom Ba'ahleishem. Says Rashi on the word Yaft. Says Rashi, Yaft Elohim Liyafet, Mitorgam Yafte. So, if you look in the Torgam, Rashi, of course, is right. The Hebrew word Yaft is translated as, by Onkelos as Yafte. And what does Yafte mean? Says Rashi, Yarchiv. It will expand, it will lengthen. So yaft elokim leyefet. Rashi tells us what it means because yaft is not a common word and we wouldn't know what it means. Can we close the door to stop the creaking? And it means Hashem will expand yefet. So that's nice. The previous pasuk was a bracha to yefet. Sorry, sorry, to Shem. And now we have a bracha to yefet and they both deserve bracha because they both respectfully carried up, covered up their father. And then it says... V'yishkan ba'ohaleishem, Yishra'a shechinato ba'Yisrael. He will make his shechina dwell in Israel, perhaps amongst Israel. Ohaleishem, the tents of Shem. Now, as I've already said, Rashi is very clear that Shem has lots of children, lots of descendants, but we're only interested in one branch of them. The, the important one, us, for whom the Torah is given, uh, is the Jewish people. So when it says, V'yishkan ba'ohaleishem, he will dwell in the tents of Shem, it means that the Shekhinah will dwell amongst the Jewish people. Now, who is the subject of the Yishkon, according to this? Who is going to dwell in the tents of Shem? Exactly, Hashem, Elohim. Interestingly, the problem is, Yaft Elohim leYefet beYishkon baOhalei Shem, Hashem will expand Yefet, and he will dwell in the tents of Shem. Who do you think he is likely to be? It's not clear. It's not clear. It could be Yefet, who's the last subject mentioned, or it could be Elohim, who's the subject of the previous clause. Um, and Rashi tells you it's Elohim. The Yishkan Ba'ohalei Shem does not mean, and this is actually partly why I mentioned the Rav Hirsch thing, that Yafet is going to dwell in the tents of Shem. Rashi doesn't entertain that at all. The subject is Vayishkan. Because, and this... Um, fits nicely with Rashi's whole direction. Actually, as I keep pointing this out, but it's the key, actually the only person whom Noah has addressed directly as an object is Hashem. Noah said, Baruch Hashem Elokeishem, Vayikana Nevid Lamo. And then Hashem will expand Yefet, and he will dwell in the tents of Hashem. In tents of Shem, sorry. It's all directed to HaKadosh Baruch so it's Hashem, maybe I should call it HaKadosh Baruch it's easier to hear, will dwell in the tents of Shem. Then Rashi says, Umidrash HaChamim. There is a Midrash of the sages. I don't know why he calls it Midrash HaChamim and not Midrash Agata. I'm sorry, there's probably a good reason why Rashi uses slightly different phrases to introduce Midrashim at different times. But here he says, Umidrash HaChamim. And it goes like this. And it, basically it's a rereading of the whole Pasuk Kafzayin. And we'll go through Rashi and we'll try to understand how he sees the Pasuk and the relationship between Kafzan and Kafav. And it says this, Af al-pi sheyeft elokim leyefet, even though God will, let's just leave untranslated what yeft means here to yefet, shebana koresh shahaya bibnei yefet bayit sheni. That koresh, in English Cyrus, who was one of the descendants of yefet, Built by Etcheni, the second Beit Migdash. Lo sharata bo shechina. The Shechina did not dwell in it, in by Etcheni. 
And where did the Shechina dwell? The Mikdash Rishon, in the first Bet Mikdash. Shabano Shlomo that was built by Shlomo, who was from the descendants of Shem. So, this is the second explanation. We'll compare the two in a minute. That's quite different from the first explanation. First explanation, Hashem will expand Yefet, and Hashem will dwell in the tents of Shem. Now it says, Hashem will Yeft to Yefet, and you have to word the word but, but he will dwell in the tents of Shem. In other words, Yefet will have a part to play in Binyan Beit Mikdash, but the Beit Mikdash that Yefet will build will not house Hashem's Shekhinah like the Beit Mikdash that Shem will build. So he reads it, and here, by the way, um, there's, a dis- there's a discussion whether in this second explanation, Rashi needs the translation of Yaft that he offered in the first explanation. In the first explanation, he said, Yaft is Maturgam Yafte, which means Yarchiv, and Hashem will expand Yefet. Now, it could be that that translation of Yaft works for the first and the second explanation, but it doesn't have to. Because according to the second explanation, um, Yaft Elokim Le Yefet basically means, and I'm paraphrasing, and then we'll go back to a more literal translation, Yefet will have a part to play in building the Bet Migdash. But... Hashem will dwell in the first Bet Mikdash, which was built by the descendants of Shem. So what does Yaft mean? It could still mean expand, or it could mean he will be Yafeh, which is the simple translation, the most obvious translation of Yaft. He will make nice. It's a, not a very uh, adult way of saying it. It sounds like a child way of saying it. But he will do nice. He will beautify Yafet. He will beautify Yafet um, in that Yafet will be building the Bet Mikdash Hasheni, but, Yishkon Baal Now, I added the word but. Alternatively, you can add the words even though at the beginning of the Pasuk. Even though, Yafta Lokim Leyefet, Yishkan, by Yishkan Baal He will end up dwelling in the tents of Shem. So, what have we done with this second explanation? First of all, what is an Ahel? An Ahel is what it always is, classically. It's the Bet Mikdash. That's one thing. Second thing is, just a little bit of historical accuracy. First of all, did Koresh physically build the Bet Mikdash? No, no he didn't. Who built the Bayat Sheni? No, oh, that, much later, Herod rebuilt Bayat Sheni. Ezra and Nehemiah, and the Jews of the time, they physically built it. They put stone on top of stone. Herod re, uh, refurbished it. He did like a makeover much later. Um, but, so what role did Koresh play? He gave Rashut. He gave permission for them to build it. And we're very grateful to him. The very, very end of um, Malachim Bet, sort of the end of the Tanakh, uh, or in a sense the end of the Tanakh, is Koresh saying, anyone who wants to go up, go up. Unfortunately, they didn't all do that. That's another story. Um, so Koresh gave permission to build Bayat Sheni. So as far as Israel is concerned, it's as if he built it. It was of Persian origin. Now, next thing is, is it strictly true that the Shechina did not dwell in Bayat Sheini? No, it's not strictly true. But it didn't dwell in Bayat Sheini to the extent that it dwelt in Bayat Rishon. What were the differences? There were things which were physically missing from Bayat Sheini, like, like the Aron that was 
disappeared at the end of Bayat Rishon. It wasn't there in Bayat Cheney. And some of the manifestations of Hashem's presence were only there in Bayat Rishon, not in Bayat Cheney. There were still miracles in Bayat Cheney, as we learn in Pirkei about those miracles, the 10 things that were in the Bet Mikdash, that applied in Bayat Cheney as well. Um, but it, it, there, was, there wasn't the Urim Vatumim. There wasn't the same connection, uh, on, uh, ongoing, instant connection to Akadosh Baruch Hu in the second Bet Mikdash like there was in the first. Now, going back to what Rashi is doing. The reason he brings this second explanation is because now, I, I, I'm sorry, I kept saying because I was building up to this point. There's the confusion in Kafvav. Is, is Noah giving a bracha to Hashem or to his son, Shem? And as I said, really, he's giving it to Hashem. And now, according to the second explanation, it's Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch all the way through. Noah says, Baruch Hashem, who, by the way, will keep his promise to Shem, and something else about HaKadosh Baruch Hu, continuing into Kaf Zion, even though Yafet will build the second Bet Mikdash, he, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, will dwell in the first Bet Mikdash that was built by the descendants of Shem. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu is now the subject all the way through. And even uh, the, the other thing that he solved, not only is there sort of a consistency, but it's a bit of a jumble if you go by the first explanation, which would say, Noach blesses Hashem, and gives a blessing to Canaan, sorry, sorry, not to Canaan, to Shem, and then gives a blessing to Yafet, and then goes back where it says, Shem, according to Rashi's first explanation, was Hashem will dwell in amongst Israel. So it's backwards and forwards. Hashem, Shem, Yafet, Israel. Whereas according to the second explanation, which is not Pshat, which is why it's brought as a Midrash, because the Torah does, isn't talking about Bayat Rishon and Bayat Sheni, not in the, in the Peshat level. Um, but according to the second explanation, it's Hashem, uh, sorry, Noah gives a blessing to Hashem, who is nice to Shem, and in the first way, in that he will give him Eretz Israel, and he's nice to Shem in the second way, in that he will dwell in the Bet Mikdash that Shem built, as opposed to the Bet Mikdash that Yafet built. So there's a clear consistency, but it's all about one theme. It's about Hashem and being nice to Shem and his descendants. And, and Yafet is not actually blessed, this according to the second explanation. That's why I think the best way to understand Kaf Zion is even though something nice will happen with Yafet, but that's sort of secondary, it's, it's just by the way, it's only there to emphasize the nature of the blessing to Shem. And again, I'll just say, because I think it's, it's, it's rather um, fascinating that Rashi is so uh, happy, if you like, to direct his interpretation to the Jewish people, even though that is very, very anachronous because they haven't come into an existence yet. Um, but you can see that as far as Rashi is concerned, not only the Jewish people and getting Eretz Israel, but building the Bet Migdash is woven into the fabric of creation itself. So Noah, you know, thousands, thousands of years before the Bet Migdash is built, is already referring to it because it's, it's going to be the focus of, of the completion of the world. The completion of the world will come when the Jewish people build the Bet Mikdash, or first will build the Mishkan, ultimately then build the Bet Mikdash, and Hashem will reside in it. And according to Rashi, that's what's on Noah's mind at this point. Okay, uh, we haven't finished Kaf Zion, because the last four words are, Vayhi Hanan Eved Lamo, which has a certain ring to it because we've said it once before in exactly those words. And, as we said, Rashi had to say something in Kafvav because Noah, sorry, Canaan has already been declared to be an Eved Avadim in Kafhei. So what's Rashi going to have to do this time? 
Correct? Right. So he's going to have to find some way, but he's even more of an Eved. And that's what he does. On the words in Kaf Zion, by Hiknan Eved Lamo, Af Mishi Yegalu B'nai Shem, even when the B'nai Shem are in exile, Yim Lahem Avadim Mibnei Kanan. Servants, slaves from, from the descendants of Canaan will be sold to them. To whom? Shem. B'nai Shem. Us. Uh, and by the way, again, Yafet's out of the picture. This fits, again, with what I was trying to say, and I said probably over, over did, um, that Rashi's second explanation focuses everything on Shem. Uh, Yafet's not in the picture. So again, Lamo, uh, them, you would be well tempted to say at the end of Kafzain, them refers to Yafet and Shem because they've been both been mentioned in Kafzain, but no, it doesn't. It's all about Canaan will be a servant to them, i.e. Shem. And the third reference to that, the third level, is even when Shem, the descendants of Shem themselves, are in a state not quite of servitude, but of exile, they will still have slaves from Canaan. So Canaan will always be lower than Shem, however low Shem is. And that's the third reference to Canaan being a servant. Is, um, I'm pretty sure Rashi thinks it's just our line. It, it's referring to just our line. Yes. Um, everything he said in these two Pesukim is just about the Jews. I mean, the last point is ambiguous, yeah. but I think to be consistent. That the land and that's, that's right. Yeah. We're the people who go into exile. That's unfortunately part of our yeah. history as well. So I'm pretty sure that when he says, Mishagalu B'nai Shem, when the B'nai Shem are in exile, he's talking about us. And, I mean, I've mentioned this now several times tonight, um, but I think it is significant. Shem had lots of descendants. We're going to learn about that very soon. Lots and lots and lots of descendants. And we're just one little tribe. And even when you get to Abraham, Abraham's descendants included many more than the Jews. The whole of Edom is a descendant of Abraham. The whole of Ishmael is a descendant of Abraham. But as far as Rashi's concerned, as far as, Ch- as Chazal are concerned, you can forget about those. Because <laughs> it's really about us. Right. That takes us to the end of Kaf Zion and the end of that incident of Noah getting drunk. And now we resume the genealogy of, of the world, basically. In Kaf Chet, it says, Noah, after the Mabul, lived for uh, 350 years. And then, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And that, by the way, sort of is concluding the style that we had um, towards the end of Bereshit. Yes, in Perak Hay, we went through all the generations from Adam down to Noah. Then there was a long digression about the flood, and now we finish the story of Noah, and we finish those generations. And now, having gone down in a, one, in a linear fashion from Adam to Noah, we now spread out. And Perak Yud starts with, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Cham, and Yafet, and they was born to them children after the Mabul. And then we go into the 70 descendants of Noah, who are the 70 nations of the world. I was debating whether we should read every pasuk, including those where there's no Rashi. 
but I thought it's probably not the most useful use of time, and this is a Shiron Rashi rather than a Shiron Chumash, so we're not going to be doing that. Although, having said that, Pasuk Bet has a comment of Rashi, so we will read Pasuk Bet. And we start with the Bnei Yefet. We go through Bnei Yefet and Bnei Cham and Bnei Shem. And the Bnei Yefet, Gomer, Umagog, Umadai, the Yavan, the Tuval, Umeshech, the Tiras. And Rashi has one comment on one of those children. And before we see what this one short comment is, what's significant about this is about, for the most of the 70 descendants, Rashi does not comment. In a few places he does, but most of them, it's just a long list, and Rashi doesn't feel there's a need to explain anything about the items in the list. But here he does. One of Yefet's children was called Tiras, which means corn, yes? But that's not what it means. So Rashi says, the Tiras, zu paras. Yes, very good. So, you're ahead of me, but you're absolutely right. So why does Rashi have to tell us that one of the Bnei Yefet, who is called Tiras, is Paras, Persia? And the answer, we presume, is exactly as you said, because that explains the comment on Kaf Zion. That it only makes sense, the whole stuff about Koresh building Bayat Shani and Hashem not residing in Bayat Shani in the same way as he did in Bayat Rishon, only makes sense if Koresh is a descendant of Yafet. Uh, and uh, it, therefore, Yaft Elohim Le Yafet is something to do with Yafet building Bayat Shani. So Rashi has to show the connection. And I think, as I'm saying this, I think it's also because, unlike some other important ancient nations, Paras is not listed in the 70. There's no Paras. There is Mitzrayim, for instance. There is Ashur. Um, so there's other ancient kingdoms which like, were big and important and important in Jewish history. They're in the list. But Paras is not. So Rashi has to tell you where it is. It's here. He's called Tiras, but that's the same as Persia. And hence, Koresh is a descendant of Yafet. So, Pastor Gimel gives more of the descendants of Yafet, including one called Ashkenaz, by the way. Very old. And then, um, in Pasuk Dalet, we're in Perak Yud, Pasuk Dalet. We go into the Bnei Yavan. Yavan, we know, is Greece. And... Um, not much happens until Pasuk Chet. Because in Pasuk Chet, well, Rashi's got something to say on Chet and Tet uh, and then Yudalev, because the, this list of name after name after name is ab- um, abruptly halted when you get to Pasuk Chet. So let's look at Pasuk uh, Vav, actually. We'll start with Vav. Bnei Cham, Kushu Mitzrayim, Ufutu Canaan. Canaan's there as the fourth son of Ham, as we would have expected. Zion, Uvene Kush, Sava, Vachamila, Vasavta, Varama, Vasavtacha, Uvene Rama, Shava, Uddan, and Pasuk Chet, Vakush, Yolad, et Nimrod. Hu hachel hiyot gibur ba'aretz. This is the pause. Suddenly we learn about somebody called Nimrod and we learn about Nimrod, things about him. Hu hachel hiyot gibur ba'aretz. He, and we'll translate Hachel as began, we might come back to change that. He began to be Gibor, mighty Ba'aretz, in the earth. And I'll read Pasuk Tet as well. Hu haya Gibor Tzayit lifnei Hashem. He was a mighty hunter lifnei Hashem. Al-Kain ye'omer ke Nimrod, and therefore they said, it was said of Nimrod, Gibor Tzayed Lifnei Hashem, mighty hunter before Hashem. That's what people said. 
So, well, Rashi's got reasons to talk, but my, uh, and Rashi's got reasons to uh, explain, as we will discuss in a minute. But what's, well, I think the, what starts the process is the fact that in this long list of names, suddenly this one particular fellow, Nimrod, gets a whole little story. So what does Rashi say about Lihiyot Gibor on Pasuk Chet? Lihiyot Gibor, Lahamrid kol ha'olam ala Kaddish Baruch Hu. Lahamrid, which is related to Nimrod, is to cause to rebel. The hifu form of Marad. To cause to rebel all the world against HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Ba'atzat dur, and I'm pedantic and I pronounce the next word, hapalaga. Um, I'm of those who thinks that haflaga is, the, is, is, is not the correct way of saying it. So I'm going to say hapalaga. So because of the plan of the generation of the dispersion. Now at this point... Let me tell you what, what Rashi obviously knows, and, 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 and we should know, because we should be familiar with the Chumash. We're leading up to, there's only two more bits of narrative in Parashat Noach. At the very end, there's the introduction of Abraham and his family. But before that, there is a very important incident, which is described very briefly in the Torah. But this parak is leading up to it, and Rashi is already signposting it. What is that? Migdal Baba, or Tower of Babel, or Dor Hapalaga, the generation of a dispersion. So Rashi says that Nimrod was the instigator. We'll see why he says that in a moment. Um, and he's mentioned here, and his name is related to what he's going to do at that time. And we also know that uh, from the Midrash that Nimrod is like the anti-Abraham. Nimrod is the one who throws Abraham into the fire. We'll, we'll talk about that later. So Nimrod is mentioned here. Says Rashi, he's got an important part in the story, not a good part. And we have to explain some things about him. Now, um, we've explained his name, although Rashi doesn't explain that explicitly. Uh, Nimrod comes from Lahamrid. But why does Rashi know that he's so so bad? After all, the passage just says he's mighty. Um, What's wrong with being mighty? Why does Rashi identify being mighty as mighty in a bad way? Lahamrid kol ha'olam, kol ha'olam, al ha'kadosh baruchu. Ba'atzat do ha'palaga to make the whole world rebel against the Kaddish Baruch Hu. And the answer is probably in Pasuk Tet, which is why I wanted to read it first. Because, Hu haya gibor tzayed lifnei Hashem. What does lifnei Hashem mean? Any ideas? Not im Hashem. Well, it's somehow contra- like against. Okay. Uh, well, I think that is what it means. You're right. But what's the obvious meaning of lifnei? Before Hashem, or in the face of Hashem, or in the presence of Hashem. We normally say Lifnei is in the presence of. So why can't it mean here, Nimrod was mighty in the presence of Hashem? And the answer is, because everything's in the presence of Hashem. Obviously. So it can't mean that. It can't mean in the presence of Hashem, because the Torah doesn't need to tell us that this was in the presence of Hashem, because everything's in the presence of Hashem. Therefore, what does Lifnei Hashem mean? The alternative meaning of Lifnei? Against Hashem. Against the face of Hashem. So give him, but it can't mean in the presence of Hashem. Lihiyot pasuk tet, kibotzayet lifnei Hashem, means a kibotzayet against Hashem. And that, I think, informs Rashi's comment in Chet. The other thing that Rashi doesn't explicitly say, but might be what's happening here, is the same as Rashi had in pasuk kaf. If you go back to tet kaf, what's the connection? Vayachel, which can mean Noach, Vayachel Noach, Noach began, and that would be the simple meaning. However, what does Rashi say? Asa atzmo chulin. 
He made himself profane, i.e. anti-Kodesh. Okay? That was what Rashi said there. Now, it's interesting. Um, this may be a stretch because Rashi doesn't make the point explicitly, but you could apply exactly the same logic. You don't say that Nimrod began to be mighty because Nimrod's always mighty. That's, that's his nature. Um, he began... Uh, sorry, so you don't need to say he began to be mighty. mighty. Therefore, hachel can mean a sense of chulin as in anti-Kedusha, as in anti-Hashem. Or you can take a different approach entirely. Um, from the same starting point that I just said, you can't say he began to be mighty because mighty is what you are. You're born with it. You're born, it's a characteristic. Unless you say gibor is actually an action. And then you can say hachel lihiot gibor. He began to do the mighty action. Uh, and what would then be the mighty action? Lahamrid kalalam ala kadosh So Rashi translates gibor as an action rather than a characteristic. So again, two different paths to get to the same point. Either you can say hachel, like he said in Perektet Pasukaf, is a expression of chulin, expression of going bad. Um, he did it before, by the way, with enosh. I forget the pasuk. Uh, the people hachel likrok b'shem Hashem. They began to call on the name of Hashem. Rashi there says it doesn't mean began to call on the name of Hashem. It means they made chulin into Hashem. They, they, they went into idolatry. Um, so there's good basis for saying that hachel is some reference to chulin, although Rashi doesn't say that explicitly. Alternatively, hachel means began, but began can't be he began to be mighty, because mighty is what you're born with. But rather, he began to do something, and that fits with Rashi's comment, laham rid kol al kol halam al baruch do you know what I said? Liot means for Hashem. So he was a representative of Hashem as a mighty Gibor. Um, as a Gibor. Uh, which, which words are you working on? Liot Hashem. Liot Lifnei Hashem. Yeah, no, that's well, it's the next passage. Who are your Gibor Tzayad Lifnei Hashem? He was a Gibor Tzayad on behalf of Hashem? Because that is something special because the rest of that generation weren't. Okay. Um, we would have a big problem because that would certainly contradict everything else we know about Nimrod. And I think that's part of the background yeah. here. Um, um, so elsewhere, Rashi proves that Nimrod was a bad guy, very bad guy. Um, so that wouldn't fit. But I don't think Lifnei could be translated as on behalf of. I mean, that's Ba'ad. I don't know if you'd find that in the Tanakh. Um, I don't know. Um, I haven't checked every word of Tanakh because I'm not able to do that. But you'd, in order to, to maintain that approach, you'd have to find that Lifnei Hashem means on behalf of Hashem some way. If you can find that, then that's a, that's a question. Okay. okay. Now, let's look at Tet. Gibod Sayyid. Now, what does mighty hunter mean? Uh, and again, Rashi clearly has, because of the indications that we've got, and we're going to get later on, Nimrod is a bad guy. So Rashi understands that the descriptions of him also are bad. Gibor Tzayid, Tzad Da'atan Shalbriot Bapiv. He captured the minds of people with his mouth. Umata'an Lamrod Bamakom and caused them to err, E double R, to rebel against the omnipresent, i.e. Hashem. So Tsayyid is not that he captured animals, that he was a good hunter, but he was a tricker. Where do we find a very similar uh, analysis of the same word? Um, I wasn't thinking of that. What's that got to do with what's the connection? Oh, I see. Okay, I was thinking something much closer. Asaf, because in let's see if we can find it. Kitsayid bapiv. 
And Rashi brings two explanations there, and one of them is... Perut kafhei, pasuk kafchet. V'yahav Yitzchak et Esav kitzayed v'piv. Yitzchak loved Esav because there was hunting in his mouth. So Rashi brings two explanations there. And the first is v'piv shal Yitzchak, um, that there was hunting in Yitzchak's mouth, i.e. Esav fed him what he had hunted. But then he says, v'mid rasho v'piv shal Esav, the hunting was in the mouth of Esav, shahayat sad oto, that he would trick him, Esav would trick Yitzchak, and trick him with words. So very similar to what Rashi understands here of Tzayid, that it's not hunting, it's tricking. Now, why is it hunting? And I think it's a simple answer, and there might be much better answers, is because if he were a big hunter, that wouldn't be a big deal. Um, we, we, uh, you know, we don't know what he had for breakfast. We don't know what clothes he wore. We don't need to know any of that. And we don't need to know he was a hunter. After all, we're taking a very, very fast rush over human history, over 1,600 years from the flood to the um, Migdal Bavo. And we don't need any of these details. So to be told he was a hunter, that would be totally irrelevant. It, was, I mean, it doesn't fit at all with the style of this chapter. But if he is the inspirer, the leader of Migdal Bavel, that's something we need to know about. And we've already been told that he uh, tricked people, he, he made people against Hashem. And continuing that theme, Kibbutz Sayed is part of that same process. So where's the hunting? Tzad datan shal briot bapiv. He trapped, he tricked the minds of people with his mouth. And then, lifnei Hashem, mitkavin lahaknito Al-Panav. He intended to antagonize him literally against his face. And here Rashi has told us what Lifnei means. And he's told us, and we already foreshadowed this, because Lifnei can't mean in front of. It must mean against, against the face of. Al-Panav, of course Hashem doesn't have a face, but Dibra Torah, Balashem Bnei Adam, the Torah speaks in the language of man. So against the face of Hashem is directly against Hashem. So that's Rashi, Al-Panav is, is what Lifnei Hashem means. It can't mean in front of Hashem because that's no Chiddush. It means against the face of Hashem. And that's Mitkavei Lahaknito, Nimrod, intended to rebel against, his, uh, against the face of Hashem. Yes? Is it good that Nimrod challenged their belief in Hashem? Well, first of all, can I just hold that thought? I want to see one more detail that's going to come out in the next line of Rashi. Yeah, sure. And then we'll come back to that. You sound like a, a modern-day educator who wants to challenge kids by giving them the alternative and then letting them construct their own meaning. But like from just, like from Which is probably true. Will, in terms of free will, like if there wasn't someone like Nimrod and everyone was just believing God passively. Like so does every generation need an anti-God? Um, can you have free will without somebody preaching against God? I don't know. I don't know. I think my, my initial feeling is we've got enough of our own Yetzirah without necessarily needing to be taught a Yetzirah. But anyway, but hold that comment because let's look at the next comment of Rashi. Al-Kain uh, Ye'omar. Therefore, it is said, 
Kenimrod Gibotzai Defne Hashem. So Rashi says in the words, Al Kenye Amar, Al Kol Adam Mashia Ba'azut Panim. It's said about anybody who is wicked with brazen face. Uh, I think best translation is chutzpah. Yodea Ribono, who knows his master, umitkavein limrodbo, and intends to rebel against him. Yeomer, of such a person, it is said, zeke nimrod gibot sayed. This is like Nimrod, who is a gibot sayed, which is a mighty trickster. Now we know that means. Now, so, uh, as a few times, not very many, but a few times the Chumash says something like, therefore it is said. So, um, Nimrod establishes a, uh, a genre, if you like, of people who act in a certain way, and people who subsequently act in that way are compared to Nimrod. Um, I don't know many people who today say, oh, you see that fellow, he's like Nimrod, but maybe they do, and maybe in earlier times they did that more frequently. That's what the Torah is saying. But look what he says about Nimrod. What's so bad about Nimrod? What's so bad about Nimrod is he was brazen, azut panim, and how did that brazen manifest itself? Yodea ribono umitkavein limrodbo. He knew his creator or his master, and nevertheless he intended to rebel against him. That's the azut panim. That's the chutzpah of Nimrod. So that's why, in response to your comment, um, I don't think Nimrod is quite the one that you're looking for. Because Nimrod, says Rashi, knows Hashem and rebels against him. Nimrod is not saying don't believe in Hashem. Nimrod is saying, well, as we will see at the time of Migdal Bavel, that we can fight against Hashem. That's quite different. So it's a, he's, he's, a, he's a, um, invoking a Yetzirah, but it's not the Yetzirah of idolatry. It's the Yetzirah of, of chutzpah. I don't think so. Okay. Why do you ask, was Nimrod a magician? Because there have been cases where that's been like an, op- like an opposition to God in history. In Jewish history? I think so. Maybe, maybe. I don't think so. But Nimrod, as I say, Rashi's clearly got in mind Migdal Bavel is coming up. Okay. And Rashi says uh, Nimrod is the leader of Migdal Bavel, but he, Nimrod's also the one who throws... Uh, Avram into the furnace because he doesn't like what Avram says about Agarish Baruch and Nimrod appears again in Pasha Lech Lecha according to Rashi I want to remember where he's one of the four kings against the five kings he's not called Nimrod but Rashi says he is Nimrod so he like keeps turning up and sort of getting in the way of Avraham um, but it's interesting that, that when we get to Migdal Bavel we will see this what Rashi says there matches up what Rashi says here that it's not just he was telling people to do the wrong thing he knew who God was, but opposed him. And that's the azut panim. That's the exceptional quality of Nimrod. That's why people, if they act the same way, are compared to Nimrod. Okay. And then we've done Tet. Uh, the next Rashi is on Yud Aleph, so we'll do Yud just to sort of fit in. Vatehi reshit mamlachto bavel, ve'erech, ve'akad, ve'chalneh, ve'eret shinar. And the uh, head of his kingdom was in Bavel, first mention of Bavel, and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So Shinar is where Bavel was. But anyway, so again, continuing this theme that Nimrod gets a special mention. So Pesukim, Chet, Tet, Yud have all been devoted to things about Nimrod in the way that we don't hear about other people in this list of 70. And then Rashi 
feels there's, there's things to be, to be explained because we're talking not just about some factual information about Nimrod, but we're talking about his character and we're talking about what he did and why he had such an impact. Then it says in Pasuk Yud Aleph, Min ha'aretz ha'hi yatsa ashur va'yiven et ninve ve'et rochavot ir ve'et kalach. From that land, which land? The land of Nimrod, which was mentioned in Yud, went out Ashur, and he built Nineveh and Rochavot, the city, and Kalach. So, um, oh, let's do Yud Bet as well. No, we'll do Yud Allah first. We'll do Rashi on Yud Allah. Min ha'aretz hahi, keivon shara'ah Ashur et banav shom'im l'nimrod. Since Ashur heard his children, sorry, since Ashur saw that his children were listening to Nimrod, Umaruddin, Bamakom, and rebelling against HaKadosh Baruch Hu, leave not HaMikdal to build the tower, which we keep saying is coming, Yatzeh Mitocham, he went out from amongst them. Very, very interesting. Ashur is the good parent. Ashur is, according to Rashi, the parent who wants to save his children from the negative influences of the place in which he has found himself. So why does Rashi say that? Well, because why else is the Torah telling us that Ashur went on a journey? Again, I come back to the point that in the course of these 1600 years, which the Torah is just rushing over, lots of people went on journeys. But if we're told that Nimrod had a place and Rashi's already proved that the Torah is telling us that Nimrod is really bad and is persuading people to do bad things, and the very next verse says, Ashur left this place, then we can make a connection that Ash, the Torah is telling us that Ashur left this place because of what Nimrod was doing, as explained by Rashi. So Nimrod was making people think the wrong thing. Ashur didn't want his children to be influenced in that way. Again, the emphasis on Nimrod, his, his influence, not just what he did. He hasn't built any tower yet, but he's going around, as Rashi says, telling people to make a mistake. That's exactly what Rashi said in, in Tet. So Ashur doesn't want to be amongst people who make a mistake. He doesn't want his children to make a mistake. What's interesting is who is Asher? Anyone know who Asher is? He hasn't been mentioned yet. He is actually going to be mentioned in Pasuk Kafbet. If you turn over the page, uh, Kafbet, when we get to the Bnei Shem, the children of, after we've gone through all of the children of Yefer, we get to the children of, uh, oh, sorry, and Ham, we get to the children of, of Shem. Bnei Shem, Ilaim, the Ashur, the Apachshad, the Lud, the Aram. Ashur is one of the Bnei Shem. Who is Ashur in history, by the way? Assyria. Assyria, who's not so nice in the end. Uh, destroyed the uh, exile of the ten tribes, Sancherev. Not, not, not such good guys. But they're our cousins, apparently, because they're also Bnei Shem. So um, even though the, the Ashur was not a Bnei Ben Cham, um, nevertheless, he's mentioned here because he's got this story of him making this journey, which Rashi says is all part of the Nimrod story. Then, Pasuk Yud Bet. So we've just read in Yud Aleph about Ashur, Ve'yivenet Nineveh, Ve'rachavot Ir Ve'kalach, and he goes on to say, Ve'resen, Ben Nineveh Ubein Kalach, He Ha'ir Hagodola. He also built Resen, which is between Nineveh and between Kalach, and it is the big city. So Rashi says, Ha'ir Hagadola, he Nineveh. That is Nineveh, Shne'emar, as it says. I just find it quite nice that here we are at the very beginning of human history, 
And Rashi quotes a Pasuk that we might know from the book of Yonah, which happened like long, long, long time later. But this is the same Nineveh. And what do we know about Nineveh? So archaeologists know it was this mighty, mighty city in Babylon. We know it was the city that Yonah was sent to, to tell them to do Teshuvah. Um, and here it is being mentioned where it's being, where and when it's being built by Ashur. Now, but get back to the slightly more prosaic. Why does Rashi have to say, Ha'ir ha'gadola hi Nineveh? And then it proves it by bringing a posse that says Nineveh is a big city. Why does he have to say that? Because you would think that it's referring to Reset. Exactly. Or Kalach, maybe. It's, un- yeah, it's, it's unclear. It's yeah, it could be Nineveh, it could be Kalach, or it could be Resen. It's not clear in Pasuk Yudbet. So Rashi has to answer that by saying, He, Ha'ir Hagadola, refers back to Nineveh. Why do I know it refers back to Nineveh? Because the Pasuk in Yonah describes Nineveh as an Ir Gadola. Nineveh seems to be the least likely of those three to be the Gion. Why? Because it's the middle one. No, no, Resin is the middle. Resin is the middle one between Nineveh and it- Kalach. Oh, okay. But still, I mean, of the words, it's still also... I'd say Kalach seems to... Well, yeah, okay. Resen or Kalach seem to be the most likely ones. Either we're talking about what's being described or the last thing. Okay, this is a problem of pronouns. And whenever... Or I think... I shouldn't say whenever. But often when there's a problem of pronouns, Rashi comes to help. Okay, what's the great thing about pronouns? Why are pronouns good? Because they save us repeating the subject every time. You see, I said there, I didn't say pronouns. Why are pronouns really bad? Why in my office in school do I ban pronouns from meetings? Because they're not clear, okay? Somebody says to me, you know, this girl's got a problem. I spoke to the mother, and what she did is this. And I say, whom do you mean? Do you mean the mother or the child? I don't know, okay? So that's the problem with pronouns. There is an ambiguity. Whenever you use a pronoun, there's an ambiguity. And in a text, what is the pronoun most likely to refer to? The previously mentioned item. But sometimes that's still not clear. Um, we had one just today. Um, uh, yes, Yishkon. So who will dwell in the tents of Shem? Now, in Hebrew, you don't hear the pronoun, but in English, you would say, he will dwell in the tents of Shem. Is it Yefet, previously mentioned? Or is it HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the previous subject of the verb? It could be either. And here, you naturally want to say, he, ha'ir ha'gadola, in Pasuk Yudbet, because he is the first pronoun after Kalach has been mentioned. But then again, it's not so much of a stretch to say it's Nineveh. It's but resting is between this one and that one, it's the big city. Um, or maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe Kalach is the natural, sub, natural candidate, but that gives even more reason for Rashi to tell us in this case it's not. Or Resin is even more, is also quite... Yes, Okay. Yeah, it seems least likely to be in there. Right. I suppose it's least likely to be in Now, now I hear what you're saying because of the, the order. It's Just ob- because of the order. Yeah. And okay. also, Resin is the object that's being described. Yes, correct. Okay, Resin is the subject. Kalach is the last named yeah. item. Where does Nineveh come from? And the answer Nineveh comes from the Pasuk in Yonah. Okay, the Pasuk in Yonah says Nineveh is the big city. Okay, that was Rashi on Yud Bet. Oh, there's Rashi on Yud Gimel. So let's do Yud Gimel. Umitzrayim, Yalad et Ludim. So Mitzrayim, you following? Who was Mitzrayim's father? Uh, Good. Mitzrayim was the son of Ham. And Mitzrayim had his own children. And they're expressed in the plural. The, the, the collective people called the Ludim, the Anamim, the Lahavim, and the Naftuchim. And again, Rashi, who does not comment on each of these various names... Comments on one of them. And Rashi on Yud Gimel says, Lahavim, 
meaning shepanehem domim lalahav. Their faces were similar to a flame. So does that mean they had bright faces, they had fiery faces, they had very pale faces, something. Their faces were light. Why does Rashi say that? So what, what, what I saw, um, and I'm not sure it's the most convincing argument, is unlike all the other names, lahav is a word that we know. The other ones are not words that we know. So they're obviously names. So what does um, ludim mean? It means ludim. It's, like, it's a name. It's, it's, not a ver- it's not a noun, it's a name. What does anamim mean? The anamim people. But when you get to lahavim, then they, you pause for a minute. Because the word ve'et lahavim means and the flames. That's what it means. Love is also the, the sword. The sword? sword. Mm-hmm. Lahav hamit hapechet. Is that a, a, which is translated as a fiery sword. Yeah. No, it's the actual sword. Uh, the fl- the blade. Yeah, the blade. The blade. The blade. Yeah. So when, um, at the end of, uh, uh, when uh, Adam's chased out of Gan Eden, Hashem puts a lahav hamitapechet there, a revolving sword, which is translated often as a revolving fiery sword, because it's a bit of both. Um, is there any other word for blade? Or is, it, is that exactly what blade is? Okay, I'm, not I'm sure there are more words for it. Okay, because it's also flame. Shall have it. Shalhevet is, is lahav with a shin at the front. Belahavat right? um, Hashem was in the snare in the flame of the fire. So it is flame. Okay? It might be other things as well, uh, which would still actually work for what I'm saying. So it's a word that means other things. So unlike all the others which don't mean things, which are just names, lahavim means flames. So Rashi has to say why we had this word lahavim here. When we're expecting a name, we get a noun. And the answer is, shepanehem domim lahav. Their faces were similar to flames. Okay, um, I think we'll stop there rather than rush the next one. Thank you very much. We will continue next week. Thanks,